dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. We all know that leaders are responsible for getting things done, leading their organizations to be productive. But sometimes we forget that leadership also has a softer side and that a leader is just as responsible for the moral climate of his organization as he is for its efficiency. In St. Paul's letter to Titus chapter 2, St. Paul outlines his vision for the leader as the guardian of excellence. And what he wrote Titus then still holds true for us today. Well, just like so many of you, I love St. Paul. I love him because he's tough. And I love him because he walked the walk and preached the gospel in very difficult situations. But I also love him because when he speaks about what it means to lead, he knows what he's talking about. St. Paul went literally across the ancient world, founding churches and leaving those churches in the hands of other people. So he had to know not only how to organize something out of nothing and how to utilize his forces well, but then he also had to know how to delegate that effectively to someone else and train them in their charge. And he did this you know, many, many times, investing in his people. He's almost a model of a leader. When you break down leadership, you come to four basic qualities that every leader needs. Okay, every leader needs to be able to generate a vision. Every leader needs to be able to make a plan and a strategy. Every leader needs to be able to execute effectively, springing from planning into successful action. And every leader needs to be able to invest in his or her people so that their people can grow into leadership themselves. So four skills. And those four skills are almost like you have the cardinal virtues, Well, you have the cardinal skills, right? A cardinal virtue, they call it because it's a hinge virtue, meaning it's it's what all the other virtues hinge upon. Well, in the same way, upon those four skills, you have every skill within leadership that's going to hinge upon them, right? Vision, strategy, execution, and then inspiration and communication of your vision successfully into the hearts of other people who can carry it on. And when you look at the life of St. Paul, he embodied those four. Take a look at vision, for example. He went to Crete as his very first place. Now, why would he have gone to Crete? He went to Crete as first place because Barnabas was there. Barnabas was with him. Barnabas had contacts. Paul knew that if he was going to be successful in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, he had to first begin in a place where he had the most resources and chances of success. And so together with Barnabas, they go to Crete. And from there, he goes on throughout the ancient world. But pushing on, as he says, into areas where the gospel had not yet been brought means that he had to have this ability to see in any circumstance that he was given how he could move forward. 
I'm thinking, for example, when he goes to Philippi and he goes down to the riverside to pray and meets these group of pagan women down by the riverside and begins to preach the gospel to them. That's vision. He doesn't stop at what he sees. He goes and creates something out of nothing. That's a, a special skill set. And that's not the only thing he does. Of course, you think of strategy, where in Thessalonica, he leaves behind Timothy to take care of the church so that he can push on to Athens. He knows when to go alone, when to move in a group. He crosses Turkey with a group of apostles, but then spreads them out. Or if you think of even the conflict that he had with Barnabas, when they, a sharp dispute arose between them, considering John Mark and whether John Mark should go with them. It's not just a vision of this is what we need to do. St. Paul was saying, this means is acceptable. This means is not. This is what we need to do. This is what we don't need to do, right? And he was able to make the tough decisions. And then, of course, when it comes to execution, you got someone who's, I mean, he's just, this is where St. Paul really excels, right? I mean, if you count the number of riots that were caused by this man, five, I mean, five, six times, crowds gathered around him in the Acts of the Apostles alone to beat him down, and Paul just refused to stop. The only way that they stopped St. Paul was by killing him. Even when he was in chains, he was still writing letters. <laughs> in prisons, he's writing letters to the churches. He's writing the Bible, basically, as he's sitting in prisons. I mean, this is someone who is a doer. Look at the number of miles he walked, the number of miles that he, that he sailed across the sea. You know, he, he, he's on shipwrecks and he's floating on the sea for a day and a half. He's been whipped five times. He's been scourged. He's been hung and beaten by rods. And yet the man just never stops, right? So he epitomizes what it means to be a person of action behind the gospel. And then you've got his engaging others, this ability that he has to, in, to, to pour himself into the next generation. And that's where I want to focus us today. We're going to read chapter two of his letter to St. Titus. And letter of St. Titus is part of three letters that they call the pastoral letters because he writes them to future bishops. He writes them to Timothy, to Titus, these men whom he's leaving behind to fill in his footsteps as the leaders of the church behind him. And Titus, of course, was with him on his journeys, as was Timothy. And to, so when you get a letter from St. Paul to you as an apostle, or as his successor on the job of raising up churches, you're receiving a, a lesson of leadership that's par excellence. This is something, we, 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 we'd be troubled to find something better than an inspired word of God from one of the best leaders ever given to one of his successors. And his, of course, full of insights for us in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, a very short letter just like Timothy, though, one and two, these letters are full of, of a heart that says from a father to his son, a successful leader to a new leader, this is what leadership requires of you. And so it's really exciting to be able to pour into this because we need this today. And remember, when we talk about Christian leadership, we're not just talking about something that we put on top of human leadership. 
even though it's a good thing to say, yes, there's leadership and then there's Christian leadership, the difference would be Christian leadership has faith. Yes, that, that's a, a very simplistic way of saying it. But more profoundly, Christian leadership means that faith has transformed every aspect of leadership and created an approach that is new, that is God's gift to the world. And you who have come to the St. John Leadership Network for this class, you've come here because you're looking for that kind of leadership. Our way of having a vision, our sense of strategy, our execution, and our way of pouring ourselves into the next generation of raising up future leader is different. It's not that it's a different thing, but it's a different spirit. There's a different set of priorities that govern it. There's a different approach to it that is unique and that's going to have certain salient features. Number one, Christian leadership guards the dignity of the individual better than anything else. Number two, Christian leadership produces better works because there's more on the line. Not only do we guard the dignity of the human person who's our workers, but also we produce better works because we are more determined be, uh, to serve the King of Kings by producing these goods and services in the best of ways. We have a higher sense, in other words, of responsibility for what we do, and that permeates everything that we do. So I could keep going into it, but we got to attack Titus right now and make sure we get in through chapter two. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. All right, everybody. So open your Bible to St. Paul's letter to St. Titus, T-I-T-U-S, chapter 2. We're going to be focusing in here on his message of leadership and his exhortation to his spiritual son, St. Titus. Now, who was St. Titus? If we look a little bit at his biography, we don't know a lot about him. It appears that he died around 65 AD, which would be shortly after St. Paul would have died. According to tradition, he went to Salona and founded a church there. But the most important part of his life was spent, of course, when as a young man, he was taken under the tutelage of St. Paul, was able to travel with St. Paul, it looks like he was present, for example, at Acts 15, the first ecumenical council, when the Christians were debating about whether or not to allow the to force Gentile converts to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic laws. And why that's important is because St. Paul had two essential people that he called his spiritual sons. Of course, he had many. One was St. Timothy, one was St. Titus. Well, St. Timothy, St. Paul had circumcised so as to not offend the people he was ministering to. He was ministering to a very conservative Jewish area where Timothy was from. So even though Timothy was a Gentile, Paul had him circumcised just so as to not give scandal to the Jews in that area. But Titus, he never had circumcised. Now that's super important because St. Paul's now going to take Titus and be with him at the very council where Paul is saying to the, the apostles that good Christians— don't need to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic practices. And he can point to one of his followers and disciples who himself has embraced the faith as a Gentile, namely Titus. 
it looks like Titus also brought the second letter to the Corinthians to the church in Corinth, which is very important. He was well received there. And that Paul had him stationed on the island of Crete, which remember was the very first place that St. Paul went as an apostle. So he knew the island well. St. Barnabas, one of Paul's mentors himself, was from Crete and he left Titus there. So Titus has a very privileged position in the life of Paul and he learned so well from him that he went off himself founding churches until he was most likely martyred uh, under the persecution of Diocletian. So this is the soul of this man is one who has been shaped by the impression of St. Paul, the great leader. And we are blessed to have a letter right from Paul to him. It's a very blunt letter. It kind of speaks also to just how direct St. Paul could be. Uh, compassionate, yes. Theological, yes. But in his pastoral letters, he's really saying to his apostles what they need to do and step up into as leaders. And he continues being blunt in chapter two. Let's go ahead and read it together here. He says, but as for you, which means as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So there's a lot to say about this, and there's much insight to be gained here. I want to underline, though, the importance that St. Paul seems to place upon the dignity of life than the, of the people entrusted to St. Titus, and the role that Titus has as a leader to set the example for this dignity of life. Now, I know as, as business leaders and professional and people in this professional sphere, you might not immediately see the connection here. You could say, okay, I guess as a bishop, you're supposed to be talking about all of that kind of thing. But as a leader of the professional world, we're much more concerned about efficiency. Well, I'll tell you what, the studies have been done and are conclusive that the culture that a, that a company sets for itself has a lot to do with its bottom line. And that companies that work on creating cultures of excellence actually produce greater profit margins and are more successful than companies that don't. And there's a link, in other words, between the personal behavior of people, their comportment, their interaction, their politeness, therefore, and therefore you could make even the argument for their, their, their lives of virtue, and the, the efficiency and the productivity of their interactions in the collaborative effort. Okay, so if I've got to work, it's really simple. If I've got to work on a team, I'd much rather work with people who speak well, don't use uh, bad language, who are courteous, who speak in, in a way that's polite, 
than I would be working with a group of folks who choose consistently to downgrade the human interaction that makes our company work. I think all of us understand very well that the productive collaboration that we call the workplace actually is a function of the people who engage in it. And what is it that makes the people who engage in our workplace? This is really the question, right? So I, I could stop short and just say, well, we have certain standards that we want to enforce. And I think that that's obviously a very good thing. But if we could invest in our workplace to not only uphold certain standards, but to generate those standards, we'd be even more successful. In other words, my role as a Christian uh, organizational leader is to create and enforce a culture where everyone who works with me and works for me is uplifted, uplifted in their humanity, uplifted in their perspective, is able to leave the place that they work every day saying that they're a better person for it. And so I, sometimes I have to defend my workplace from negativity, from, from, from impure images that float around to crass language that floats around to attitudes that could be derogatory to other people. And then encouraging, uh, encouraging folks to be positive, encouraging good efforts that are put forward, encouraging a human and globalistic view of the person working for me where I understand their whole context and can support them in different ways. So we both are, are prohibitive and we're encouraging, but with our eye fixed on what? What's the measure? What, what is the goal that I'm trying to achieve when I set forth a culture? This is a really important question because most of us are awake today to the notion that we are responsible for a good workplace and we want our workers to be happy. I mean, just think about the, the way turnover can kill a company. If you look at UPS, for example, one of the large corporations, they invest in their people in all kinds of different ways for one obvious reason. They, they want to reduce turnover. If they can reduce turnover and if they can reduce defections from their company to their competition, they can have a competitive edge that can make them win. Now, I'm sure UPS has a lot of humanitarian ethics as well. Well, but at the same time, I know that as Christian companies, this is what we're supposed to be trying to do. Caring for our people because we are witnessing to the dignity of the worker that's been given to us. But fundamentally, what is the standard we're shooting for? What's the ideal of the good life that we want to guarantee? It's really important to have this because if we don't set the standard according to Christ, the world will set the standard according to political ideals that can change and that in the end are manipulated or manipulative of someone else's agenda. We have to have a standard we have to be able to define culture, accept user guidelines, set user guidelines for our people, speak aloud about who our company is and what we, what we choose to embrace, all of that, great. But, the, but if we don't set the culture according to that of Christ and therefore a genuine human excellence, well, someone else is going to set the culture much lower and perhaps in ways that are even injurious to the human person. It's our duty as Christian leaders, in other words, to claim the cultural space with the proper definition of human greatness. And that's where Titus chapter 2 comes in. In Titus chapter 2, St. Paul outlines for us what true human greatness is. And he exhorts his leaders to embrace it, embody it, and to lead his people to it. So let's take a look at what that means. 
Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org slash member and join for free today. So looking at Titus chapter 2, we come to see a vision that St. Paul has here for genuine human greatness. And that's a vision that we have to constantly keep in front of us because if we're leading people, we're not just getting stuff done. We're leading people to get stuff done. And a person is always more than their productive capacity. And we who lead need to be able to embrace all of that. Well, what is that vision for the human person? Look at how St. Paul approaches it here. Um, He says in verse 15, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke, with all authority. So exhort as means encourage this positive vision and rebuke, prohibit uh, behaviors that are contrary to this positive vision. With all authority, let no one disregard you. He's saying to St. Titus, hey, your role as a leader is extremely important and you need to exercise it. Well, exercise it for what? He says, exercise it for this vision of a human life that is profoundly excellent. This, is, this calls upon us as leaders to have a virtue inside or to act according to a virtue called magnanimity. Magnanimity is a vision for life that sees what is highest as the standard. And instead of giving way for the easiest of things, actually quests to make things the best that they are. It's the virtue of a king. It's the virtue of someone who says we want to live at the very highest level. And so what does that look like? Of course, it looks like Jesus Christ to guide our people to be like Christ. And so St. Paul then describes some of these virtues, being sober-minded, for example, dignified, self-controlled. Three, all three of these are interesting because these three adjectives all speak to a kind of restraint that older men need to be able to exhibit, almost as if we've practiced throughout our lives at withholding ourselves from letting our passionate speech, from letting negativity flow out of our lives, out of our mouths, from giving way to the easier things of the flesh, yelling at people, motivating by coarseness, whatever it could be, uh, laziness, to hold this dignity of saying, I'm sober-minded and self-controlled. A woman, for example, he says, to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. So there's a standard, in other words, of life that a Christian is supposed to exhibit that is one of not giving way to the easiest desires for simple pleasures, but looking and striving for a life that exhibits soul, that exhibits the mind, that exhibits a truly free will. This kind of deep humanity that exudes through someone who uses the things of this earth for something higher that they possess, a vision of life and a a way of life that's greater than simply following after what's easy and what what titulates their passions, right? Well, this takes work. This is a hard thing to do. It's not easy to be excellent. We, it's much easier for us to give way into the little things. And you see that in our companies. You see that where we work. Pettiness, 
gossip, complaining. You know, I was just last night having a dinner with uh, an Air Force pilot, and he said he was making a joke. I have no idea if it's right or not, but he said, you know, pilots love to complain. You could give them a bag of gold, and they'd complain how heavy it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, there are people like that, right? Well, it's, it's, it's easy to do that. Uh, you're always uh, moaning about the authorities above you and criticizing everything that they do. It's never good enough. Or you're always, you're being sarcastic and making negative comments about people who are below you. They're never good enough. No one is ever, because in the end, you're self-serving, right? And so, he, so see, Paul says to Titus in verse four, train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive. What is he saying with that? He's saying, hey, we need to exercise ourselves towards an excellent way of life. If we just let go and float, uh, we'll be like a dead fish. Dead fish float downstream. <laughs> Living fish swim and, and swim against the current. Right? Well, it, it's the same way for each one of us. And it's the role of the authority to keep that in mind. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, verse six. And then in verse seven, you, the leader, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, right? So the idea is you who lead, have to do more than organize the human endeavor towards a productive end. You need to organize the human endeavor towards an a productive end well. The way that we dress, the way that we hold ourselves, the way that we listen to the different voices, the respect that we show to others will trickle down through our organizations to generate places of the spirit, places where human beings come to become better, that I work in my company as a way for me to progress in my humanity because my leader is a leader who embodies a vision for a humanity that's higher and that's bigger. Not only do we just accept everybody, we challenge everybody once accepted to become excellent. And why? Because we actually have a vision for that excellence. Our eyes are on Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the most perfect of all love. And seeing perfect love in him on the cross, we imitate that perfect love by lives that are truly dignified, truly spiritual, truly intelligent, truly human. And being that model, we exhort with all authority and we, and we rebuke with all authority in order to fashion and mold the culture around us to be in that image of that great love, to be in the image of Christ. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.